And it's so good to know that our God is good. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. And you can bank your soul upon the Lord. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it that a simple jar can be the means through which hunters over in Africa trap monkeys. You would tie a jar to a tree, you put some fruit in the bottom, and you wait. And when the monkey approaches, they put their hand inside the jar to grab the fruit. And as they grab it, it makes a fist. The fist makes them unable to pull their hand out of the jar. If only they would let go, they could pull their hand out. But because of greed, they hold tight and they're captured. What a picture of so many today. Wealth, greed has grabbed hold of their hearts to the point in which their white-knuckled grip upon the things of this world has brought them into slavery. And it's a trap. Freedom is found when you let go and you trust it to Jesus. Unfortunately, for a wealthy young man in Scripture, he refused to let go. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 10. As a faith family, we're walking through a sermon series called On the Move. We're walking through the gospel of Mark and seeing how Jesus is on the move. This is a fast-paced, hard-hitting book in which there is so much to unpack We see Jesus where in the first nine chapters, he's up in the northern part of Israel. He's healing the sick, raising the dead, walking on water, feeding thousands with just a little bit of food. He's got a robust teaching ministry. He's chosen his disciples and they're learning how to follow him and how to to serve the way he serves. We see here in the Gospel of Mark where he is writing down eyewitness accounts of what Jesus did in his life and in his ministry. John Mark followed Peter around, and so Peter has told Mark what he saw through the ministry of Jesus. Thus, we have the Gospel of Mark written around 65, 68 A.D., His audience is primarily a Roman audience. They're experiencing the suffering of living under the authoritarian rule of Emperor Nero. And the whole thing he's driving home in this book is that Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the king who came and gave his life for us in the gospel. Well, here in chapter 10, as Jesus is wrapping up his ministry in Perea, that is the the southern part of the nation of Israel, uh, right there in the middle near Jerusalem, as he's finishing up his ministry on the east side of the Jordan River, he's now about to embark on a 30-mile trip to Jerusalem for his final trip there. And as he is going, he is approached by a man who is caught in a trap. And he comes to Jesus trying to figure his way out. Look with me at Mark chapter 10, 
beginning with verse 17. The scripture says, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand. And he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, look, we've left everything and followed you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers, and sisters, mothers, and children, and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. As a man of tremendous power and influence and affluence, this young man approaches Jesus asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. And what appears at first as just an easy conversion, it becomes a sad rejection of Jesus in the kingdom. You see, wealth is a trap that prevents people from coming into the kingdom. I want you to notice in the text these four truths. The first is this. I want you to notice the deception of trusting in your own self-righteousness. The deception of trusting in your own self-righteousness. As a ruler in the synagogue, this young man, he has earned respect. He has accumulated wealth. He has influence in the community. But his conscience is bothered. He is uncertain if he has done enough to earn salvation. But see, that's one of the dangers of works-based salvation. You never know if you've done enough. You see, if you think you're good enough to get to heaven on your own, if you're trusting in your good works, the question you have to answer is, is it enough? You see, the answer is, according to Scripture, it's never enough. No one is good enough to earn our relationship with God. No one is good enough to gain salvation through your good works. But this man approaches Jesus because he's just not sure. He's uncertain if he has done enough good things to receive eternal life. He's wanting to make sure, have I checked all the boxes? Have I made sure I've done all the right things? I'm a good guy. I say all the right things. I do all the right things. I got a lot of money. I help a lot of people. Man, sure enough, I've got eternal life. But he comes to Jesus wanting to double check. He's eager to know how well he's measuring up. 
But he's also approaching with a lot of zeal here. Look at verse 17. It says he ran up to Jesus. You see, in that culture, men do not run. It's considered childish. It's considered unbecoming of a man. That's what makes the Luke 15 prodigal son story that Jesus tells so shocking is you have a father who sees his long lost son in the distance and the father runs to him. That's a shock to that culture, but it's a picture of the love of God, his love for children, for those who've gone astray. When they return, a father who sprints to them But you see, this man, he's so eager to know if he really is right with God, if how he can gain eternal life, he runs to Jesus. But look and see what happens here. Verse 17, he kneels down before Jesus. Now you would think this is exactly what we're looking for here. This guy is seeking Jesus. It's like, Jesus, hurry up, tell him. Tell him to pray the prayer. Jesus, quickly, let's baptize this guy. Man, he's wealthy. He's he's got influence and affluence. This guy, he can handle money. Let's put him on the budget and finance team. He's an asset to our cause. And the disciples were probably thinking, man, this is what we want. This guy's young. He's probably handsome. He's got a lot of money. He's an up-and-comer. This is the kind of guy that we're, we're looking for. Let's let him join our band. He can be part of this. But you see, Jesus is looking past what man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord is looking at the heart. This young man, he calls Jesus good teacher. Notice Jesus doesn't rebuke him for calling him that. But rather, verse 18, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And since you call me good, indeed I am, I want you to understand that I am God. Jesus here is affirming his deity. That the only one who is good is God. And guess what, buddy? You're looking at him. But then he asks the question that every human being asks, What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that everyone deep down inside asks. Have I done enough? Have I done enough good works to balance out my bad works? Am I a good enough person? Have I done enough? What do I have to do here? He's hoping that religion can save him. But you see, religion cannot save. Trying to be a good enough person person is insufficient. It's not enough before a holy and perfect God. You see, Judaism, it requires perfect and meticulous obedience to the Old Testament law. Islam demands obedience to do what the five pillars require. Religion demands action. It demands good works to attain salvation. Yet the gospel of Jesus Christ says the opposite. We do not do good works to earn God's favor or to inherit salvation. We are trusting in the perfect work of Jesus for us. You see, followers of Jesus We are trusting in Jesus' perfect obedience for us. 
We're trusting in Jesus' perfect death on the cross for us. We're trusting in Jesus' victorious resurrection from the grave for us. You see, religion commands you to work and trust in what you do. Jesus invites you to rest and trust in what he has done. You see, the gospel compels us to do good works, not to be saved, but because we already are saved. You don't do good works to try and earn salvation. You do good works because you already possess it. All the world religions will tell you what you must do to receive salvation. Christianity points you away from what you must do and points you to what Jesus has already done. He, the, the scriptures are driving you not to you, not to pull up the boots on your own salvation, not to bank your soul upon your goodness or worth, but upon the goodness and worth of Christ. You're trusting in who Jesus is and what he has done on your behalf. You see, your good works cannot save you from sin and death. Only Jesus can save you from sin and death. And he did so by going to the cross. Well, this man approaches Jesus and he's wanting to know, have I done enough? What have I got to do? Well, what does Jesus do? It's interesting here. Notice in the text, he points the young man to the 10 commandments. Jesus uses the 10 canons to undercut the scaffolding of this man's self-sufficiency. You see, the 10 commandments, they're not means of salvation. You and I don't try to keep the Ten Commandments in order to get salvation. We don't try to keep the Ten Commandments to make sure that, okay, we've done all these things, so I'm good with God. That's not why God gave them. The Ten Commandments are rather a measuring stick. They help you and I to see where we compare with the perfection of God. And what they reveal is that we don't measure up. No one can raise their hand and say, I have always honored my mother and father. No one can say, I've never told a lie. No one can say, I have been perfect and sinless in all of my ways. God gave the law to show that we can't keep it. We are a people who are unable to attain perfection on our own. So how in the world can we as sinners stand before a holy and perfect God? Well, the good news is that holy and perfect God sent his holy and perfect son for us. Jesus is the one who is the perfect law giver and the perfect law keeper. Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly. Jesus kept the law perfectly because you and I cannot. And that is good news. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. And he died the death that we deserved at the cross. And he gladly and joyfully and willingly chose the nails he chose to suffer and die for you, motivated out of love for you and the whole world. Jesus gave his life so that through him, God restores us back into a right relationship with himself. You see, the law was designed to humble us, not to make us prideful. The law was given for God to show not only his perfection and his worth, but to show, guess what? You can't keep it. 
You can try, but you're going to end up exhausted and frustrated because no one can meet my perfect standard apart from my perfect son. And so Jesus is the one who is pointing this man to the Ten Commandments, driving him to see his need for a Savior. The Apostle Paul tried to live this kind of life. He, he sought out to live a zealous life before he knew Jesus of trying to keep the law. He was passionate about being blameless and being obedient to the Torah. But then in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, But everything that was gained to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You see, when Jesus is your righteousness, you consider your old life a loss in comparison to knowing Jesus. You see, this young man, he hears Jesus' review of the Ten Commandments, and in his self-righteousness, he says, well, I've kept those since I was young. I've kept all that. Now, is that true? Nah. He's trusting in his own self-righteousness. This is a guy who's looking at his own merit and worth and all of the good things he's done. I've done this. He's sincere. He thinks he has. But you see, our sinful hearts have a habit of making us think that we're better than we really are. Don't be deceived today in trusting your own self-righteousness. Before a perfect and holy God, you don't measure up. So trust in God's perfect and holy Son. Run to Jesus who kept the law for you and gladly died because you couldn't and rose again, defeating death, so that so too will you when you bank your soul, not upon yourself, but upon him. Unfortunately, this man, he didn't do it. Why? It's because, number two, the demand of costly discipleship. Jesus loved him, the text says, He has compassion on this young man. God loves lost people. Jesus loves sinners. You'd be thinking, man, I've done so many messed up things. My past is ugly. There's a lot of shame in my past. If you only knew how bad I lived, if you only knew the poor choices I've made, if you only knew the terrible words that have come out of my mouth, well, God knows. And you're exactly who he's looking for. Jesus loves sinners like me and you. That is such good news. God sees you for where you've been and what you've done, and he still loves you. It's called grace. It's meant to humble you. It's meant to drive you and I to our knees and say, God, I don't understand why in the world you would love someone like me. But he does. Here Jesus loves this man. But then he gives a devastating blow to the foundation of this man's life. Look at verse 21. Jesus tells him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus here is pulling back the curtain on this man's heart and he's revealing that money was his God. This man had broken the first commandments. He had other gods 
before the Lord. He loved his possessions more than he loved anything else. But hear me on this. To gain eternal life, you cannot love God and money. Jesus says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, this young man, he's dismayed by this demand, verse 22. And he went away grieving because he had so many possessions. This man is weeping as he walks away from Jesus. His money and his possessions were more valuable to him than Christ. The price was too high. The sacrifice was too great. He loved his money and his stuff more than the Lord. But notice, Jesus doesn't go running after him. Jesus doesn't say, hey, buddy, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Who can keep up to that standard? Come on back. I'm just playing. He doesn't do that here. No, no. Jesus is laying it out here very simply. The cost of discipleship is high. The point is this. Jesus demands first place in your life. Discipleship demands that Jesus be number one in your heart and life. He will not take second place to your job. He will not take second place to your spouse or to your children. He will not play second fiddle to your hobbies or your possessions. Jesus demands first place. Question, is Jesus Christ number one in your life? If the answer is no, today would you repent? Would you humble yourself before the Lord and say, God, today I want to turn back to you. I want to reprioritize my life and center it upon Jesus. And if you're thinking, man, there's no way God would receive me. Oh, yes, he does. The cross is proof. The cross is evidence that God loves you and he invites you to turn. And today, would you do that? Would you return back to this truth right here where Jesus calls you to say, Lord, you are number one in my heart and in my life. And there is no one who competes with first place. I love my wife and children, but Jesus is far superior than that. I love my job and the people and all that I have. Yes and amen, but they pale in comparison to Jesus. Is that your heart's desire? If the answer is no, then you cannot be a disciple and you cannot come into the kingdom. Here Jesus is laying out the cost of discipleship. And this man, he was unwilling to do it. He wasn't willing to give up his possessions. He wasn't willing to forego his earthly temporary belongings and he went away grieving. But this is not a godly grief here. This is a worldly grief. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. See, this man loved his stuff more than the Savior. He wanted his possessions more than Jesus. And you see, his possessions possessed him. Question. Are you holding so tightly to your stuff that you become blind to the fact that your stuff is holding tight to you? You're just like that monkey 
holding on to that fruit in a jar. You're enslaved. It's got you. Your white-knuckled grip on your stuff is robbing you of the kingdom. Today, would you loosen your grip? Would you say, God, I'm going to give you all that I have and say, Lord Jesus, you are going to become number one in my life and there will be no one close to second place. This is the demand of costly discipleship. But thirdly, what I want you to see in the text is the difficulty of accessing the kingdom with wealth. As the man walks away with tears in his eyes, Jesus then turns us into a teachable moment with his disciples. He turns around and notice the exclamation mark here. He exclaims here. It's like he's shouting how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why? It's because wealth breeds self-sufficiency. Why in the world do I need Jesus if I can take care of me? One of the dangers that we have living as American Christians is that we've got money and we can take care of ourselves and it's created self-sufficiency. And while I praise God for the gift of money, there is danger in that it can make us spiritually vulnerable of not realizing how desperate we truly do need the Lord. You see, this man walks away with tears in his eyes, but he's unwilling to give it up. Jesus here is painting a picture for this man of what life would be like without no, with no money, with, with no inheritance. There's no mansions. There's no servants. Everything is stripped away. All you have is me. Can you handle that? Is Jesus enough if he is all you have? Question, what about you? If your wealth is taken away from you, if you no longer have your portfolio, if you no longer have your 401k, if you no longer have your home, your cars, your clothes, and all of your toys, and all of it is stripped away, and all you have is Jesus, question, is he enough? That's the heart of the issue here. Is Jesus enough for you? So that when everything is stripped away and all you have is him, is he enough? You see, holding tightly to anything other than Jesus reveals an idol in your heart. So Kenneth, are you saying that it's a sin to be rich? No, you can't make that conclusion from scripture. Jesus is not driving home here that it's a sin to be wealthy. The Bible does not teach that rich people are good and poor people are bad. That's not what the scriptures teach at all. What Jesus is saying here is there's something radically wrong with all of us, regardless of how much you've got in the bank. You see, money just makes us blind. Money has the power to deceive us, just like this young man in the text, that we're blind to our true spiritual states. You see, for every person, we must experience a miracle. Something has to happen to us to open our eyes so that we can see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. There has to come this point in which we experience grace. This amazing grace of Jesus that he offers us in the gospel. But the sad reality is that when love of material things is greater than our love for God and neighbor, it reveals enslavement. A white-knuckled grip on money keeps you in chains forever. But when you open your hands, when you posture your hands open like this and you release your money, your money releases you. 
But do you see why we must not only reject this right here? We have, this is why we have to despise and reject the health and wealth gospel. We cannot be a people who believe or affirm the lie that just put your faith in Jesus and you'll always be healthy and wealthy. That's hot garbage. Jesus here is driving away from that. Here Jesus is seeing money as the problem with this guy. He's blind. He can't see. Jesus is not some magic genie where you just rub his lamp and your financial dreams come true. Rather, when you're wealthy, it's difficult to enter the kingdom. And this is why we got to be careful because if you've had three meals a day, you got clothes on your back and a roof over your head, you're in the top 10% of the world. This is about us. Before you think about the Joneses down the street who have a bigger and better and whatever, this is us too. Feel the weight of what's happening here in the text. Jesus says, verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now at the time, the camel is the largest land animal in Israel. Jesus here is using hyperbole. And you and I both know that if we had a needle and a camel, they won't fit. That's the point Jesus is making here. Notice what he calls his disciples. Verse 24, he calls them children. Why? Because he's teaching them just a simple truth that even a child can understand. What Jesus is doing here is he's driving home this reality that salvation is impossible by human effort. Now, this shocks the disciples, verse 26. <laughs> they say, well, then who can be saved? <laughs> How is this possible? You see, from their perspective, when you're rich, it's a sign of God's blessing. And then if you're rich, you can have eternal life because you can give more to in alms, you can, you can give more sacrifices. You, certainly, you can purchase your own salvation. Well, Jesus tells in verse 27, that's impossible. Man cannot be saved on his own efforts. But because of God, in his own sovereign grace, verse 27, all things are possible. Salvation is not something that man can accomplish. If we're left to ourselves, there's no way we would ever make it into the kingdom. But with God, all things are possible. Anyone can be saved. You come to Christ and believe, you will re be received. It's, it's impossible for you to do it on your own, but Jesus Christ has made a way for you to inherit salvation. And it's through faith in him. Believe the gospel and trust in him. Release your grip on wealth and grab hold of the cross. The fourth thing we see here in the text is the dividend of a rich reward as a Christ follower. Peter reminds Jesus that the disciples have done what the rich young ruler did not. Peter's the spokesperson of the group, often speaks before he thinks, but here he, he just kind of shoots out of the hip and says, Jesus, we've less, left our fishing businesses, we've left our incomes, we've left, left our families, we, we've, we've left everything, we're following you. And so Jesus, and Peter is asking, in essence, what, what's in it for us? Okay, what's our payoff? What do we get? Jesus doesn't criticize Peter's question, but rather he points to a rich reward for following him. You see, God has riches that are infinitely greater than anything that this world could ever provide. You see, you have an inheritance 
1 Peter 1.4, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. God's reward is eternal. As I was meditating on this passage this week, there were two texts that came to my mind that I thought, oh my goodness, that's it right there. In Hebrews chapter 11, remember Moses, he was raised up in Pharaoh's palace, the wealthiest, most powerful nation in the world. He grew up as Pharaoh's daughter. But Hebrews 11 verse 24 says, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth, don't miss that, than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. For Moses, his mindset was, I don't need a palace or royalty or the approval of aristocrats. I don't need all of this wealth. And rather, I'm gonna give all of this up so that I can go suffer with the people of God because there's a greater reward that is coming. And then it also reminded me of, of Hebrews chapter 10, where you have the early church, these believers, these uh, people that the writer of Hebrews is writing to who are suffering, they're losing their land, they're losing their property, they're being criticized. And in Hebrews 10 verse 34 the writer of Hebrews says, for you sympathized with the, with the prisoners and, watch this, accepted with joy, two key words, with joy, the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So here's the question I was asking myself. What in the world would cause Moses and the early church to be willing to give up earthly possessions, to be willing to give up wealth, to be willing to give up the things of this world? And here's the answer. It's that the reward that is to come is infinitely greater than the reward right now. The reward to come is infinitely greater than the reward that is to come. You see, there is an even greater reward than you could ever put a bow on. Then in comparison of what is to come, nice cars, big houses, flashy clothes, guess what they burn up in the end. But you as a follower of Jesus, as a citizen of the greater kingdom that is coming, have a reward that is imperishable and undefiled, it's unfading and it's waiting for you. This is why Jim Elliot was exactly right when he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus says that for those who have given up things in this life, like houses and cars and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children and fields and businesses and financial security and comfort and ease of life, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, Jesus says, verse 30, you will receive 100 times more. I love that. 100 times more. It's kind of like my kids sometimes when they're trying to think of a number that's like, that's just, yeah, it's infinity better, right? Jesus is saying, listen, it's gonna be so much greater. 
Yes, you've sacrificed. Yes, you've given up everything to come follow me. But I want you to know you have a reward that is coming that is significantly greater than anything that this world can provide. This is why Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break it and steal. But rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart may be also. But, Jesus says, many who are first, they're going to be last. And those who are last are going to be first. You see, for those who've been faithful to the Lord Jesus, those who have sacrificed and given up everything to follow him, those who have lived in obscurity and we don't know their names, they're going to be considered first. It's the widow who gives her all for the sake of Christ. It's the poor pastor in the third world country who will never get a book deal, but is faithfully loving and plowing and caring for his family and loving and caring for the church. A man who doesn't receive a significant financial compensation. It's the millions of believers who will never stand on a stage, who will never hold a microphone or have a light in their face. Jesus is saying, those who think they're first, guess what? You're going to the back of the line. It's those who have left everything for the sake of me, those who have been faithful, those whose faces are not going to be on some sort of magazine or social media feed. It's those who are forgotten by the rest of the world. There's coming a day in which Jesus is going to flip the script. Those who were considered great in this world, according to the kingdom of Christ, the Lord's going to say, you guys head to the back. It's those who have been forgotten, those who have sacrificed, those who have given up so much to follow me. You guys come up here to the front. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? Let your impact point into this. Open your hands and offer your all to Jesus. You see, Jesus is the better, rich, young ruler. He who was rich became poor, so that we who were poor might become rich. The one who possessed all the glory of heaven gave it all up, and he took on the form of a servant. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did what this man was unwilling to do. What about you? Are you willing to let go of the things of this world? Are you willing to relinquish your white-knuckled grip on your stuff in order that you might gain something that lasts a lot longer than anything that this world can provide? Remember, Jesus never asks you to do something that he himself hasn't already done. And in the gospel, we have a savior who is the rich young ruler, who is greater and better, and he is the one who relinquished all of his rights. He relinquished all of the wealth of the glory of heaven and took on poverty. Why? For you. Jesus became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. So today the call is to take your hand out of the jar. Let go of your wealth 
Let go of yourself. Let go of your possessions. And look by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is where you'll find freedom.